This episode of Equity is presented by MetaLab. MetaLab designs and builds products for companies that are expecting massive growth. Slack, YouTube, and Uber are just a few of the startups that hired MetaLab on their way to becoming household names. They're the product agency that helped design the original version of Slack and the YouTube player that is still in use today. Last year, MetaLab collaborated with the founding teams at Neuralink and Pitch. Unlike a lot of other agencies, MetaLab doesn't claim to be full service. They do one thing and they do it really well, and that's digital products. If you're ready to build a product for millions of people, then visit metalab.com. Tell them TechCrunch Equity sent you. Hey, everybody, stick around after the show. We have TechCrunch's Jordan Crook here to tell us all about the upcoming early stage event for founders, and I think she has a discount code, so we'll see you there. Hello and welcome back to Equity, TechCrunch's venture capital-focused podcast where we unpack the numbers behind the headlines. I'm Alex Wilhelm and I'm joined today by Danny Crichton, one of TC's managing editors. Danny, how is life? It is 70 effing degrees here in New York City, which is, I know for our California residents, a daily occurrence, but out here in New York, it is like mana from the heavens. Yes, yes. I didn't realize how much it was hitting me until I walked outside today and actually smiled. And I was like, ah, those muscles. I'd forgotten about them. Uh, but <laughs> over in California, we do have Natasha Moscarenas. Natasha, how are you doing in the smiley, happy Californiaville? My reason for being smiley and happy today is that we are talking about an acronym that is not SPAC. It's going to be a different acronym. It's also a lot more fun to talk about. Like Way more fun. There's actual spice in this, so it'll be fun. It is going to be fun. Natasha, of course, is alluding to the now famous or infamous NFTs or non-fungible tokens. And we have a really kind of kick-butt show for you today. We are going to talk about exactly what NFTs are, how they're made, some historical antecedents as well. We're going to bring in Matthew Panzerino, the editor-in-chief of TechCrunch, his first time on the show, I believe. And then we're going to riff on the cultural implications of NFTs and why they might actually really matter down the road, not just for the crypto fans out there, but for the artists you already love. We are going to kick off with Danny telling us a little bit about the historical NFT world. Danny, I thought these were new, but actually they're quite old. 60 seconds. You know, when we talk about NFTs, we always jump to Ethereum, the blockchain, all those digital technologies. But, you know, the, the concept of having some sort of token represent property goes back to the very foundation of civilization, right? So when you have title to a home, title to a car, those are, if you will, NFTs, okay? When you have a stock certificate, you own shares with a sheet of paper. That piece of paper is a token for the equity in a company. And so a lot of what we're talking about, yes, it's ownership. Yes, it's new. Yes, it's exciting. That's on blockchain. There's a lot of value to that, but it goes back into the past. And this reminds me actually, Danny, of bearers bonds, this idea of a financial instrument that if you hold it, it's yours and ownership is transferred by handing it over. So there is actually quite a lot of historical precedents for this. And Natasha, I think we had a couple of consumer examples as well. Yeah. I mean, I think one of the best examples I've seen so far is drawing it in comparison to trading cards. When people don't get the point of NFTs, those collectibles have always existed and have had a soft spot in society. Now, though, it's turning into something new. Yeah, and I want you to take us into that a little bit. So when we move into the world of blockchain, what does an NFT mean? And why might someone out there listening who has yet to really dabble in crypto care? Yeah, so I think the best way to think about NFT and its relationship with crypto is NFTs don't need crypto to be NFTs, but crypto might need NFTs to finally become the mainstream asset class that it's always wanted to be. What we're seeing now is a lot of people are using digital pieces of art, digital collectibles, digital music, and are, are, are minting it on the blockchain and then tracking their ownership of it on that 
blockchain. Yes. Danny, do you want to tell us a little bit about different blockchains, the risks thereof, and how people know that something is unique in the NFT world? Yeah. So, I mean, most of the smart contracts we've seen that back these NFTs are on Ethereum. Obviously, Bitcoin has been this digital gold. Ethereum has always been this idea of a decentralized computer, right? So being able to program contracts of which a non-fungible token is a contract. It says that you can only have one of them. It can only be sold to one other person. If you sell it, you cannot copy it as you do that. Famously, the ERC-20 protocol was the one who set up the NFTs and originally got these started a couple of years ago. And then over the last couple of years, we've really started to implement all the different pieces, parts of the technology stack to allow us to build it. So we have different ways to mint, such as mint.af. We have different ways of actually transmitting these NFTs to marketplaces so you can buy and sell and trade these. Even though Ethereum gas prices have been increasing quite a lot, which is a, a huge block in the space, more and more companies have built marketplaces targeting different types of creatives and art. We, we've just implemented a lot of the infrastructure of the last couple of years compared to 2017, 2018. And the idea of like provable, unique ownership on a single blockchain is one of those cool things that the cryptocurrency world writ large actually allows for. You know, I mean, you can't fake it. The risk of it, though, is Danny, that I thought of and a lot of complaints have come up about this is, you know, what if you just copy it on a different chain? Doesn't that kind of defeat the purpose? You can do that. And look, it's only unique within the context of a single chain, right? So if you take a video clip of 10 seconds and say that's the token, we're going to put that on this chain, let's say chain A. Chain B can also do the exact same thing, and you have this random other title. It's not so dissimilar, in my view, to the rise of title insurance. When you buy a house, when you buy a car, oftentimes you have to buy title insurance, which is a risk that you don't actually own the thing that you think you own, that someone else actually has owned in the past. You don't have property rights to that particular asset. In many ways, blockchain solves some of those problems. But again, you know, for instance, just in the last week or two, we had Jack Dorsey sell his first tweet. I forget which chain <laughs> he did that on. But like, that tweet is not owned by the person who took on the NFT asset. There could be multiple assets that all sort of own the same tweet. So the, the question is, is like, which chain is going to win? Is there just going to be one chain for all collectibles and all NFTs? Is that network effect going to be built up? Or are we going to see 10 or 12 different chains all competing with each other for different markets, for different contexts, different assets, etc.? The part here that is getting a lot of noise, and I think might unintentionally be making people feel frazzled about NFTs, are these big dollars we're seeing associated with a 20 second video. I think a lot of people are like, who would spend two million for a meme ever? And um, <laughs> that is exactly what's happening. But it's, as Danny said, it, the blockchain is enabling you to actually own it in a way that's different than a screenshot. And even on top of that, we've also seen, seen with NBA Top Shot, within 24 hours, they've had $10 million of volume go through the platform, including, uh, I think in the last year, about $100 million of so-called moments is what they kind of call their NFT assets. Not only is there minting and people buying the first run of this, we're actually seeing volume transactions where people are trading the assets, selling them to different people, etc. The thing about Top Shop, Top Shot, sorry, <laughs> Top Shop is a place I shop. Um, the thing about Top Shop, <laughs> there are four tops. Is it? Is it? Do you Top Shop at Top Shop? I asked shop, for or this one. Else? I asked for this. Um, so the thing about Top Shot. <laughs> we're gonna okay, move on. Again. We're gonna keep going. The thing about Top Shot. <laughs> <laughs> that people might not realize, or at least I didn't until I read Megan's piece about the inclusive potential about NFTs, is that Topshot doesn't need you to have a crypto wallet to buy a moment. And so that's what I was kind of alluding to earlier, that this is a way that people can start playing around with what has up until this point been a really nerdy concept in a way that feels accessible with literally your credit card. And I think that's really what crypto is needed. Yep. And this is a great moment to bring in Matthew Panzerino. He is someone, at least in my life, who has had an eye for trends ahead of the time. He was early on sneaker reselling and, and lots of different cultural moats that have become very, very important parts of the world. So Pans, you're the perfect guest 
to have here on NFTs. Uh, I'm curious, when did you first run into the concept and start to kind of pay more attention to this? Because for us, it's been a couple of weeks, but I presume for you, it's been some time. Uh, yeah, about 2017, early 2017, I started kind of paying attention to the the space, the concepts um, of, you know, a, a fixed token versus a fungible token like Bitcoin or another exchangeable asset. But I'm pretty sure my on-ramp was like a lot of people who still participate in this and, and have been following along uh, was in the CryptoKitties situation. So they launched and I think a couple of days after they launched, I bought a couple of CryptoKitties, which I still have uh, in my digital collectible wallet, along with my other art that I've purchased from the ecosystem. And that that was probably my first on-ramp into a consumerized version of an NFT. So I've been following it and tracking it ever since. The CryptoKitties um, on-ramp uh, was part of the transformation of NFTs from the ether to, oh, okay, I can buy a thing, right? Got and they attached <laughs> this thing to a, a picture of a cat, but they also built it back into the game, which was that the cats each had uh, genetic characteristics uh, that represented, you know, in physical characteristics, whether that be color or eyes or in some cases, special editions that had, you know, special clothing or whatever. And then when you bred those kitties, like paired that kitty with another kitty, it would run a uh, cryptographic hash and come up with a new set of characteristics, some inherited and some new and then thereby creating unique strains of cat or kitty. And so there became, you know, developed a market around finding rare genetic characteristics and those were worth more. Yes, Danny. Well, I, I think what's interesting here is like, you know, in the old world of like title, you had a house, you sold the house, you got the same house. There's no kind of transformation as part of the sell process. But what's nice with these smart contracts, you know, on Ethereum or any blockchain you're using is, those tokens can actually be recombined and, and multiplied in different ways. So even though you're not creating brand new tokens out of thin air, so to speak, you can take your existing tokens and transform them in those processes to something new. There's a form of ownership we've never had before. So interactive right. ownership to some degree, effectively, Denny. Think of it as like a REIT, right? Like you, if you took six apartments and you're like, okay, I own these six things. Now I own a REIT. You could combine them and now you own this new form of ownership, which is the whole building or something like that. Now we're actually seeing that on the blockchain as well. Okay, so Danny's not mispronouncing yeet there. He actually meant REIT, which is R-E-I-T, which is a real estate investment trust, which is an investing vehicle that you can put money into to generate incomes off of real estate. Danny, you have to explain the non-VC acronyms. This is equity, not everything quitty. Um, everyone knows more about crypto kitties than the physical meat space world. Our audience definitely knows more about crypto kitties than REITs. Uh, Natasha, I'm, I'm curious about what you think about the, the broad array of things that are, are NFTable. Among the kind of art, music, and sports world, which stands out to you as the most uh, potentially uh, lucrative or interesting or uh, alive, perhaps? You know, I think the one that gets probably the most airtime is like art. And I think it deserves that. Like that feels like the biggest potential, at least for accessibility. Like I think you can be a huge artist and um, have the audience to naturally um, like be able to mint a part of a song or an album, for example. But I think with art, we see so many people go viral on Twitter and really not know what to do with it. And I feel like this is a really cool spot for artists who have that shot in the spotlight to not just get like even one buy, but like get a buy and then see that kind of aggregate over time if it passes through other hands. Pans, this brings up an important part of NFTs, one of which is that you can actually release sets of things like one of 10, which is also relatively common in certain parts of the art world, in the physical art world, I should say. 
And then also there's this idea that if a piece of art or an NFT is resold, the original progenitor can get a chunk of that sale. Can you tell us a little bit about the economics of NFTs? Yeah, that's actually fascinating. Um, probably the most fascinating part of NFTs is that the ability of the artist so the additions thing is, is as you said, it, it's a, the closest equivalent would be to prints, right? Um, but the additions, these are two very <laughs> disparate topics, even though they're both related to economics of NFTs. But the additions thing, just to clear that board really quickly, is really useful for people, obviously, that want, say, a more accessible piece of art. Because an addition of 50 is definitely going to be less expensive than a one of one, you know, by the nature of the market. But they are also being used and leveraged in different ways. People that own an addition of, say, 2,000 or 10,000 or whatever of a particular token or a particular offering may be considered part of a membership or club. And that really delves more or skews more towards the arena of social tokens, which we can talk about a little bit. But to switch to the other really interesting economic mechanic that NFTs have, that is the, the sell-on percentage, which would essentially have the direct allegory is commission, right? But instead of commission being paid to the person who sells it or a gallery who hosts it, that commission is being paid back to the original artist on every additional sale. And I, my father's an artist. I was an artist in the past who sold works in a gallery, even um, helped run a gallery at, at one point. But I, I can tell you, and this is for people who don't know the art world, it is absolutely insane and 100% standard in the art world for an artist never to see an additional penny from their artwork beyond an initial sale. For sure. So an artist sells a piece of art. That's the price they get. Let's say they sell it for $6,000. Then let's say they go and, you know, catch a baby falling out of a burning building and get famous. And then art doubles or triples in price. They see none of that additional value. Right. You know, maybe it's related to their art. <laughs> Hopefully it's just the artist getting more popular. But I think, I think worst case scenario, art. <laughs> well, worst case scenario, they die. Right. And their art becomes famous after death. This is the very common, you know, thing that happens, especially uh, with the master painters. Their paintings were worthless while they lived and got very expensive after their, <laughs> after their death. But but artists do gain in popularity and add value to their work and have up to this point seen no future value from that. Like, you know, I was thinking a lot about the, the music space in this, in this uh, area. And I have Spotify. I can stream anything I want whenever I want forever for this ridiculously low price, which I should pay more Spotify. Come on. But if a band that I really love came out and said, hey, you know, we're going to NFT like a second of this song off our new album. I mean, I would definitely run to my wife, who's our accountant, and be like, honey, I got to buy one second of the new Trivium song. And she would look at me like I was the dumbest man alive, but I would totally talk her into it because to me, that's a band that I want to support. And that wanting to support of a particular artist that I care about is something you can't screenshot. You can't reproduce that or download it. That's me caring. And that's valuable. I think Pants, over to you. Yeah, it is actually a fascinating arrangement because not only are we seeing people get compensated for art that's already been widely adopted and distributed and remixed and frankly stolen, like creators of memes, like uh, the creator of the Nancat sold sold that meme, uh, one of one original, so to speak, of that meme for like $600,000 or something like that. Uh, the numbers obfuscate, though, what's important here, which is that NFTs and the architecture of smart contracts and the way that social tokens work, these are all opportunities for the creators and originators of culture to finally take part and participate in the rewards of the platforms of that culture. 
you know, that host that culture. Because we've seen it over and over again. Uh, an artist blows up uh, on TikTok and, you know, somebody does a dance to them and then that video blows up. Uh, what does the artist get out of it? Sometimes they get a recording deal. Many times they get nothing, right? Um, Vine famously built on black creators and brown creators and Latino creators and Latino creators. TikTok very much the same. Uh, black Twitter, one of the early driving forces of engagement on Twitter and culture on Twitter. How many of them were actually able to participate in the economic rewards of Twitter as a platform selling advertising and making millions of dollars and their stock going bonkers. Besides, of course, you know, maybe they were able to purchase stock, right? So the, the remapping of how creators can participate in that economy directly by saying, hey, I've created something of value and I'd love to connect directly with the people that enjoy that and they can provide me value back. That's what's so exciting and interesting about this. And there are many, many mechanics beyond just I sold a piece of art um, that are enabled by um, NFTs and tokenization as a whole uh, that I think we'll see develop over time. Um, I've seen people, uh, for instance, sell a, a, a very, for a very small amount, the buy-in to a social token, and that social token gives people access to that community. And then in that community, they can get things like advanced pre-sales of tickets or, or special concerts that are for those members only. And that token is their key that unlocks that world you know, of, of you know, fandom or, or community with that person. And right now, all of that is disintermediated by the platform's tools and architecture. Famously, YouTube has launched next to zero tools for creators in the last 10 years, famously. And so you, you look at that and you go, how much do they actually give back you know, to the community and help them to, to do their job better? And you go, maybe it's time for a more direct relationship between the creator who's doing most of the work anyway and the users. You know, if you look at the art world, you know, there are some areas of art where there is recurring revenue, right? So you look at music. You know, you can sell it, you can stream it. If you are an artist, your music is streamed on Spotify, you get royalties back. If you're in film, same thing, you get royalties back. Maybe not to the artists themselves, but to the distributors, the owners, the production companies, etc. You know, in novels, the publishers are making that money. What I find interesting about this, and we've seen this in the uh, music world in particular in the last year, is people are actually selling stakes in their catalogs. So uh, a couple of major artists have sold their catalogs for 300 million, 500 million bucks. And, and in many ways, as a person of the public, it's interesting that you can actually invest and say, well, I like Britney Spears, or I like Bob Dylan, or I like, um, you know, Grimes, or whoever the case may be, and you can actually buy into their own success. I mean, one of the, the interesting dynamics, I think, going forward into the NFT world is to say, it's not just owning a part of an artist, it's saying, I actually believe in this artist's future success, I want to make them more successful, I own a stake in their future success, and I can now popularize them, I can try to host events, I can make them more uh, popular, whatever the case may be, and so you're t- turning those fan clubs and actually kind of giving the economic incentives to actually go and do the work even more. Danny, on that point, if we consider an artist's body of work, one thing in, that one person controls the economic rights from it, it's non-fungible. You could tokenize it and I could buy part of, back to my example, the Trivium discography and own 1% of, of this band that I adore. But what we're doing there is we're really cutting it up into individual slices. We might call them shares. We might say that I have, quote, equity in that company. We could set up an exchange where we could trade equity, call it a stock market perhaps. Are we not just gently riffing back towards the world we're in with your example? I think you guys are touching on a lot about the objectives of someone who would want to own an NFT. It's not simply about a future investment. It can be about believing in someone. It can be about believing 
in a concept. But I think that's like so important because I think ownership of an asset in general is often seen as X for the rich. And now it suddenly can be like a lot broader than that. And that changes like the people who are helping create galleries, who are helping create marketplaces and how they have to operate, too, if it's not just about that. Well, I think, you know, along this line, you don't have to buy the whole library, right? Uh, this is what we're seeing with Top Shot is like you can just buy a three second clip. Now, some of those are really expensive, but obviously not all of them are expensive. So it's possible for you to buy a famous star's dunk or whatever the case may be, this five second clip. And maybe it's only 200 bucks. And now you own this sort of unique clip in a way that you didn't have access to before. All right, let's let's put aside the, the buying mechanics and talk a little bit more in our last couple of minutes here about cultural impact, because this is the thing that I care about possibly the most. You know, do we think, for example, that artists are going to be able to make lots more money from their creations in the next couple of years thanks to NFTs? Does that mean we see a new class of artists? Does the middle class world of art go from being like nobody to being relatively rich? I mean, I don't know where this goes, but I do feel, uh, Natasha, starting with you, optimistic to some degree because, you know, we haven't seen much business model shakeup in the art world since the advent of music streaming, which is very niche to one part of the uh, the broader art ecosystem. Yeah, I mean, I think change is good and I'm glad it's a conversation, but I do think the minting process itself is super hard to be done by everyone. It can cost, Panzer, please correct me because you have minted some, but I believe it can cost like- yeah, It's variable depending on how busy the Ethereum chain is at the moment. Uh, so you have to pay a variable fee depending on basically how many people are using the network. It's one of the big pain points. Yeah. Um, so the on-ramp, that's he- um, Danny earlier mentioned Mint.af, which is the Mint Fund. It's run by a, a set of crypto art enthusiasts and, and a community that is trying to help artists be able to mint. And so they've provided a fund to help people uh, pay the fees to, to mint, which can range. It could be as low as $40. It could be as high as several hundred to mint a piece of work on the chain simply because it's busy at that point. Ethereum prices tend to go down during the day and up during the evening, or no, vice versa. Down during the evening, no, no. They would go down during the day and up during the evening. I can never remember, but it's cyclical basically based on you know how many people are using it and, and geography, et cetera. Um, so the, that ties in though, you know that, that monetary aspect that you mentioned, Natasha, ties into uh, one of the big things about it, which is the ecological aspects. Yeah. Um, this is probably the biggest negative blowback on Ethereum and NFTs is that Ethereum is by nature a very heavy chain, which means that it takes a lot of work to prove that a, a block has been written to the chain. Not quite as heavy as Bitcoin, but it's up there. And that energy usage that was used to mine that Ethereum that's being spent on the chain to confirm a new transaction is being sort of <laughs> credited forwards in for lack of a better term to the artists minting on it. I don't think that's absolutely fair, but it's absolutely fair to acknowledge that it does have an ecological impact. Sure. Well, I think that's what's interesting, right? It's not just the business models are changing, the technology is changing. So Ethereum is very heavy, but we've seen like Topshot is built on top of the Flow blockchain. And one of the arguments for Flow is it costs a lot less, it doesn't use as much energy, it's less climate-induced trauma. And so I think that we're going to see a lot more innovation in the next couple of years around reducing the cost of minting, reducing the expense, both in terms of climate and also just the onboarding to use these chains effectively. I agree with all that. And, you know, we think a lot about Bitcoin as digital gold, and I think it's done a reasonable enough job of holding at least some valuable, a little variable for my taste, over time to, to meet that. It's not really used for transactions. Ethereum, Danny called kind of the world, kind of global computer. Maybe that's not the right chain 
for NFTs long-term if flow is more efficient, it could attract more people and have less of a climate impact. However, I will tell you, if you do try to bring up the climate impact of crypto on Twitter, you will get shouted at. So I do not recommend that you do that. By, by both sides, to be honest. Yeah. The fact is that nobody actually really has a great handle on the numbers. There are a handful of resources available. Um, there are projects like Offsetra, which are trying to help you know crypto folks offset their the carbon value. Um, artists like Mimo Atkin and Joni Lemercier and... Um, Sutu, and there's a handful of other folks that are talking about the ecological impacts and trying to develop a roadmap for improving those, which is great because proactive is better than just complaining about it. It's not going away. No, that's what I. That's what the conversations I have with people about this, where they get too strident about the ecological impact. I really try to get in there and say, look, I, I, I understand, I empathize. This is not stopping. And in many cases, the bill has, or the money has already been spent, right? Like the bill has already been delivered and paid for. And so now these additional architectures that are being built on top of it, sure, you can attribute the adoption of those architectures to future losses, or you can help mitigate those future losses and figure out a way forward. And so there are examples of people proactively working on it. There are, are chains like Cosmos and Matic and Cardano and Tezos and even Ethereum too. You know, I'm making the sign of the cross here. Uh, one day it may arrive and bring uh, proof of uh, stake versus proof of work, um, meaning that it takes a lot less effort and therefore has a massively less ecological impact. But you know that the Ethereum 2 has been a long time coming, so I'm not waiting for that. I think a lot of people should be much more proactive about finding chains, alternative chains, side chains, lazy minting or layer two scaling that can help lower the costs of these in the near term, because this is not stopping. It's only going to boom bigger. And as a part of that, we need to find ways to be proactive about it now rather than sort of uh, trying to call a halt. Yeah, well, we obviously are talking a lot about art, but NFTs are not limited to art, right? So anything that is non-fungible could potentially be on the blockchain. So for instance, housing or real estate could be on the blockchain. One major use case people love to, to rat on is, is Ticketmaster and ticket sales. But like theoretically, tickets are an NFT. Every seat at every game could be sold on a blockchain. You could sell it. You could get rid of the entire scalper market, possible. We see other assets in sports, collectibles, it, you know, it goes way beyond art. And that, that, that to me is like the real potential when we go back to the original question of like, how is this going to change culture? Well, basically anything you can buy, sell and trade that is unique. And like almost everything you own is in this category, right? All property is in this category, all promises, all IP rights, every patent could be on a blockchain. To me, that's where the real potential of this technology. And so when I predict forward in five, 10 years, like, yes, there's a lot of technology issues. There's a lot of stuff around the economic model, but like this is going to be hundreds of billions of dollars and of trillions of dollars traded on these tokens, in my view, in the next 10 to 15 years. That is the bullish take from Danny, who was in a good mood because the sun is out. If it was snowing today, Danny would be shouting about how dumb these are. But that's NFTs. It is early innings. That is an overview. We are having fun. Of course, we will learn a lot more in the coming months and quarters, and we will be covering it over on TechCrunch.com and here on the Equity Pod. Goodbye. That is our show, but we are very, very lucky to have our own Jordan Crook here to tell us a little bit about our upcoming early stage event that I am incredibly excited about. So Jordan, at a high level, what is early stage and how is it different from other kind of TechCrunch events that people might know of? So unlike other TechCrunch events, we don't have a main stage at early stage. It's all breakout sessions all the time. So we have experts across fundraising, marketing, operations, essentially any question that your startup might have asked to be successful, these folks have the answer and they're going to have plenty of time for audience Q&A. Awesome. And uh, I'm going to be doing a session with Ryan Azis, the CRO of Zoom, all about how to build a startup sales team. I'm very, very, very excited about that. Uh, Jordan, tell us more. Who else is coming? 
The lineup is insane, dude. So we have Tope Otona. He's the CEO and founder of Calendly. He's going to be nice. talking about bootstrapping, which he did very, very successfully up until recently. We also have Alexa Von Tobel talking about finance for founders, not just how to run your company's finances, but how to manage your own personal finances while you're starting a business, which I think is super, super important. Uh, we also have keys to nailing product market fit with Rahul Bora. Uh, from Superhuman. It should be just an outstanding lineup, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. We have a couple of sweeteners that we have in the mix. So Jordan, tell people and the equity audience what we have for them. So if you buy a ticket to early stage, you automatically get access to Extra Crunch. So it's kind of a double whammy when it comes to things startup founders need to know. And we're offering our equity audience a 20% discount. So if you use code equity at checkout when you're buying your early stage ticket, you're going to get the most bang for your buck. All right. Well, it's coming up in just a couple of weeks, so we'll see you all there. TechCrunch Early Stage coming in April. It's going to be amazing. All right. Bye.